Party people, welcome to the Patrama Party, where it's our party and we'll cry if we want to. And goddammit, sometimes we really do want to. So bust out your what? Your keg stands and your waterproof mascara, and let's get our trauma on. This week, we're talking about codependence and people pleasing which is a huge fucking bummer and also definitely something I've struggled with. It's something that has made me really mad at myself and it's been a big part of my astrology. I have five Libra placements, including my moon and Libra shadow is people pleasing. So just the biggest woof for that aspect of my chart. But people pleasing and codependence show up all over the place in lots of people's lives for lots of reasons, how they were raised in particular, the romantic relationship dynamics they're attracted to, their level of self-worth, their core fears and beliefs. But also I think that women raised in a patriarchy, which is, by the way, virtually all women on earth, (laughs) have people pleasing ingrained into them from day one. And I think that as women, we take on codependent behaviors without even thinking about it sometimes, without even realizing that it's codependent because it's just the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. It's what normal looks like for us. And it's not healthy. So those are just some initial ideas that I have about codependence. And to help us shed some light on this mother of a topic is marriage and family therapist, Sarah Brunig. Yay. Welcome to the pod, Sarah. (laughs) And I also identify with having a lot of codependency, just all in my family generations. Um, And yeah, like you were just talking about Libra signs and I was like, wait, my partner is a Libra. I wish they were much more people pleasing than they are. (laughs) Ah, interesting. I wonder what the rest of their chart looks like. I would love to find out. I think that I would get an eye roll from them, but I would love to know. Yeah. (laughs) So thanks for um, having me. Oh my God. I'm so happy you're here. And to get us started, speaking of astrology, you are a Virgo. Is that right? I, yes. I definitely have a very strong and loud and proud part of me that uh, is very, very Virgo, very, very blues and beiges. And sometimes is like a whimsical fairy that can tell me we can take care of all this. And other times is like going to beat me down for not being like more organized and in control. So, yeah. She lives and breathes in me very, very, very loudly. Yeah. Virgo is such an interesting sign and um, also is the sign of service, which it makes sense and the sign of health and service. So it makes sense that you are a therapist. I think that makes that's totally in alignment with your astrology. But let me ask you, do you like to garden and or cook? I like projects, period. Um, If we had a garden, I'm sure I would. I come from like half of my family is very agricultural. Um, And I do when I am not super, super busy. I love the idea of cooking and meal prepping and baking. Um, I just love projects. Like I am a farmer's daughter who just wants to get up and do 
Oh, um, God, I very w- therapeutic and for me and um, yeah. Wow. I really wish that I had that. <laughs> I do not. I like to sleep in and don't. That's what I, that's what I prefer. Um, but I, I asked because I have a running list of Virgo women who love to garden and cook. So I was just curious, but maybe one day, maybe one day you'll get into gardening. Who knows? I would like that. I'm sure my dad would like that too. <laughs> yeah. Your farmer dad. Yeah, totally. And I wanted to give a minute because you said you wanted to start off with a statement to kind of help you get grounded and settled in. Is that right? Absolutely. Thank you for giving me time. Um, like I first, I wanted to let everybody know that like with the exception of my gender, I pretty much, um, was born into this world with like all of the privileges. Um, and as much as like, I, I have and continue to learn and grow, I, hold this awareness and sometimes shame um, that like my perspectives and experiences are often filtered at least to some degree, like by like all of these privileges. Um, you know, I, I always want to make this promise to everybody that I get to work with and come in contact with is that like, I want to continue to learn and grow and improve. And that I am going to fuck up a whole lot along the way. Um, it also felt important to kind of provide to everybody just a quick sense of like my grounding as a therapist, um, because it is, it will, it totally grounds in how I'm going to engage with everybody today, engage with like this topic today, um, especially being American. Right. So, um, I believe that every, did you say, did you say, especially being an American? Yeah, just like this American culture that we have um, that definitely, um, you know, we take bits and pieces of other cultures a lot of times, but we really strive for this like independence. Um, And I don't, I only need somebody if I choose to want them kind of thing, Um, where there are like a lot of cultures out there where there's multiple generations like living in the family. And um, and I'll get into it later, but like what the difference is between interdependence and codependence and this like big spectrum and stuff like that. But I just know that like being an American it is going to impact how I judge some of these behaviors. Does that make sense? Totally. My God. Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Um, So like, I believe everything in us, like every cell in our being is oriented towards survival. Um, And we want to survive everything, our surroundings, our communities, our past experiences, our present circumstances, our relationships, everything. And it's like a necessary, like super force that is constantly working on our behalf. Um, And there's, there's a little bit of like respect and compassion for that, that I think is important to be present. But I also recognize that like, Surviving does not equal thriving. It doesn't always equal quality. Like so many of us want quality in our everyday relationships and experiences inside of ourselves, certainly in our community. That's like so much of what we're striving for. Um, And uh, this desire has kind of been commodified at times by parts of like the American culture and even like the mental health industry that I'm a part of. Um, and so Princess Hemphill, um, it, who, you know, is someone who I got, I get to say, like, I got to share space with this person for a year or two when I was doing my training, says it best when they said, 
you know, that the industries of self-help and wellness are really centered around managing and controlling white women's intimate and existential anxiety. I'm a white woman with a lot of intimate and existential anxiety and ensuring white male achievement. So what is encouraged and allowed or invalidated or validated in all of our experiences can be shaped by these priorities. So the real and hard work is reimagining the intentions and parameters of wellness together. So um, I kind of read that to myself um, each day before I get to sit down with the people I get to sit down with um, to kind of like orient me to what, you know, I agree with as like the real and hard work. So that is me. Wow. Yeah, that is so that's, um, I love that you added that piece about being American. That is something that sometimes I forget. So thank you so much for doing that. And I love that we're going to talk about the difference between codependence and interdependence, because that's, that's something that I think we struggle to understand, especially, um, I think maybe especially as women, but we'll, we'll get there. And also a lot of that goes for me too. I know I intro the entire pod with that, but just, you know, it, it bears repeating that I'm cisgendered, I'm white passing, I'm mostly heterosexual, and that comes with a ton of privilege. And I'll also probably fuck up because of that. I mean, certainly not. Probably. <laughs> so thank you so much for starting us off with that, Sarah. Sure. So I'm going to jump into some of my personal experiences with codependence. Sarah, feel free to interject at any point with a woo or a what the fuck or with any thoughts or feelings you might have an urge to express along the way. Um, or if you, if you'd rather just, you know, slap some cucumbers on your eyes and chill out, totally fine too. Either way, at the end, I have questions. I have questions, girl, and I'm very excited to ask, ask you about these. So how does that sound? How does that, how does that itinerary sound? That works. And I'll be muting myself off and on because, um, I've got kiddos screaming occasionally. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. We love kiddos though. Okay, sweet. So. As much as possible, I like to start off with some trauma light to ease us into the combo. So when I was little, I was raised around people who struggled with addiction, borderline personality disorder. So I was primed for people pleasing. And I have this memory of being 10 years old. I was staying with my dad at the time, and my dad was an active addict. He was emotionally withdrawn with his children. He took very little interest in me outwardly. I don't know how he felt inwardly. And he had real issues with rage. Basically, I just wasn't getting my parenting needs met. So I I got creative. And one morning before he'd gotten up, I went into the living room and got all his drugs. <laughs> Which, From what I remember, it was mostly just like weed and weed related paraphernalia. And laid it out on the table like it was breakfast like the pipe was the fork and the weed was in the middle and the lighter was the spoon, <laughs> et cetera. Because even though I was in the fucking dare program and I knew this shit was illegal, blah, blah, which obviously we all have a different view of weed now as laws have changed, but this was 1991 and I was a child and I full on made weed breakfast for my dad, 100% in an attempt to get him to love me as much as he loved his drugs. And that my friends is a red kiddo to do wait say that again that's such a loving thing for a kiddo to do like at <laughs> that age and stage of development oh yeah I was like how, how like what does dad love I know drugs 
Aww. Yeah, so sad. Just like, yeah, the worst codependence flag. The next thing that comes to mind right away is fast forward about seven years. I'm now 17. I'm in high school. I have a boyfriend. I have a life-size Tori Amos poster on my ceiling. That's irrelevant, but it's true. Anyway, my boyfriend and I were taking a nap one day. He fell asleep first and I changed my breath to match his breathing rhythm so that we'd be breathing in unison, even though it made me feel like I wasn't getting enough oxygen. Like what? I'm over here, like not even breathing on my own. So uh, what was going on in my life that by the time I was 10 years old, I was already exhibiting pretty unhealthy codependent behaviors. When I look at that, both my parents were super volatile emotionally. I've talked about this before. My mom very likely has borderline personality disorder, which is characterized by a few things, but one of them is unpredictable rage. My dad was an active addict of multiple things. We just won among them. And that made his mood swing from vacant to raging to very rarely engaging in a pleasant way, like tickling us and actually when he tickled us, it hurt, but I was too afraid to say that because I didn't want him to get mad. And also because it was one of the only sweet things he did with us. And I'll give a couple examples of what that looks like in the day to day. When I was about four and my sister was six, I remember my mom took us to a Mexican restaurant to meet up with my dad. They were already separated by then. And when the waitress brought chips and salsa to the table, my sister and I sat on our ankles to make ourselves taller so that we could reach the chips. And that totally enraged my dad. He started screaming that we were bad kids, that we were disrespectful. He was screaming so loudly that like the entire restaurant was staring and he was cussing at us, cussing at my mom. And then he stormed out. I have another memory from when I was eight or nine and my dad made us dinner. My dad loved and loves really spicy food. He was known for carrying habanero peppers with him everywhere he went. That's how much he loved them. Anyway, he made us dinner one night when we were staying with him and the sausages he'd made were too spicy for me. And my mouth was just like totally on fire. So I told him it was too spicy and he screamed at me, told me I was ungrateful and I wasn't going to move from that seat until I'd eaten everything on my plate. So in other words, with my dad, because his rage was so unpredictable and nonsensical, I was taught that anything I did could result in punishment. And I think some people who experienced that kind of abuse go the other direction. They become rageful themselves or they become like super angry toward authority figures. But I went the other way. My goal was to try to figure out a way to get love in an impossible situation. So I started what would turn into years of contorting into all kinds of crazy versions of myself to try to get my dad to one, stop ignoring me. And two, when he wasn't ignoring me to stop being mean to me, which is how I thought about it then, but actually it was about getting him to stop abusing me. I thought that there must be something I could do differently that would change his behavior toward me and make him love me with my mom it looked different. My mom was also super volatile. And sometimes it looked very similar to my dad's rage, but she was also very openly emotional. People with borderline personality have a really hard time with emotional boundaries and perplexingly to many of us simultaneously struggle with empathy. So my mom would treat us like her confidants super early on in life. 
telling us about her abuse as a child, telling us about her difficulties with guys she was dating, her heartbreak over my dad, et cetera. And our job was to be her support system. And that made me feel loved and needed. I knew that if I emotionally supported her, she would be affectionate. She would say she was sorry for raging at us. She would tell us she loved us. But when I needed emotional support, it was often not there. And an example of that is when we were little, if we cried, she would say, go cry in your room. No one wants to hear that. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Another time when I was 15, my neighbor who was 16 sexually assaulted me. And when I told my mom, she said, she said, I can't believe he would do that to me as in to her. (laughs) And then that was the end of the conversation. There was never an emotional check-in or follow-up to see if I was okay. And by the way, I was not okay. I spiraled into a deep depression that lasted close to two years, but I was not able to have that conversation with anyone in my life, least of all my mom. So I really learned this cycle with her that in order to prevent her from raging, I needed to give and give and give, but emotionally, the focus was rarely going to be on me and my needs. It had to stay on her and her experience and her reality and her pain most of the time. So I use those examples in case it's helpful for other people to draw comparisons and start to see where there might be similar moments in their histories where they learn to survive using codependent behaviors. For me, I was operating out of a belief that I was emotionally authentic, if I was emotionally authentic, which could mean angry, disapproving, sad, really anything beyond happy and compliant, you know, even sycophantic when it came to my dad, then I would be rejected or abandoned by the people who were providing me with all my physical needs, like shelter, food, clothes, et cetera. And the truth is that was an excellent survival strategy as a child. Being honest about my anger toward volatile people with unpredictable behaviors as a tiny person with no agency, really not a great idea. But the problem is that when you're raised with that belief that you'll be abandoned or threatened in some way, if you're honest, it doesn't just go away when you're an adult and you actually do finally have agency. In your body, that fear is still super real and it can feel just as terrifying to be honest and to have boundaries when you haven't healed those wounds. And actually, even when you kind of have done a lot of healing, it can still feel that way. For me, this has shown up in literally every facet of my life. It shows up in romance. It's shown up in friendships, in my career, with my therapist, literally everywhere. I feel it when I drive, people honking at me, fills me with terror because it means someone's mad at me. And as far as my body is concerned and my emotional memory is concerned, that means I'm in danger. So here are a couple examples of what it has looked like as an adult. For one thing, boundary setting has been so hard for me. Last year, I dated a guy for a minute. And while we were, I talked about this in the last episode, but while we were together hiking one day, he mansplained how I should feel about God. (laughs) He was an atheist and he felt that anyone who wasn't an atheist was an idiot and a coward, which left very little room for me an agnostic at the time. I'm actually more spiritual now than I was then to express my view. I went ahead and tried anyway, but when I did, he just pretty much knocked it down. 
But instead of saying, dude, the way you're talking to me is whack. And if you're not interested in hearing my view, then I don't think this is going to work. Instead of that, I, <laughs> I told him I had to pee and I went and cried behind a bush, which is just like, yeah, like totally my pattern. I did end up telling him how I felt later that day, but it took all of my courage. It definitely wasn't an instinctual response. It was like the feeling you have when you're first learning to ride a bike and you're just like, how the fuck does this work? How do I do this? Like this contraption is so awkward. Here's another one. At work, I recently had a people-pleasing attack when my boss on this freelance project I was doing started following my Instagram. I was flooded with fear because on Insta, I show up a lot differently than the way I show up in a professional setting, aka I'm very vocal about feminism, and I let a lot of that feminist and political anger out in my stories, which was exposing that I'm not purely sweet and acquiescent and agreeable like I was being on this job. And it was interesting because I could see I was caught between two spaces in my evolution. I felt strongly about continuing to take up authentic space on my Instagram and simultaneously felt fear that doing that would mean rejection from this job, which is how I make money and sustain my life. And after talking it over with my therapist, it became so obvious that that directly mirrored my relationship with my parents as a kid. I can't be me with this person who has authority over me because they might reject me and then I won't have my physical needs met. AKA not being myself is how I stay safe. I later got great feedback from this woman, this who was my boss on this project. So it was really powerful for me to see the difference between what was going on in my head and in my emotional space on the one hand, this fear that being myself would result in rejection. And on the other, what was actually true that she loved working with me and wants to have me on again in the future. Okay. So what are some tools that have helped me with this? The biggest one for me has been getting in touch with my anger and understanding that anger is a treasure. I've had such a difficult relationship to anger, one, because I wasn't allowed to express it as a child, but two, because the way that anger was expressed in my home was so violent and um, unhealthy and scary, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. So I just pretend that it wasn't there. But anger is awesome and healthy, in fact. I think maybe this is true, but I, I think that not experiencing anger is probably problematic. Like even Jesus got pissed at those vendors and flipped their tables over. I'm not, I'm not Christian, so I don't know the exact story, but I seem to remember that from Bible school. Oh my God. I, Can I just say, like, when you say that anger, like is such an anger is such an important emotion and like, yes, we want to learn like not to put it on to other people, but like, yes, we need anger. Okay. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. And to your point, um, the trick I think is learning how to express anger in a healthy way. And I don't know that I'm an authority on that necessarily. But what I have found is that if I can calmly say or write out in a letter, like I feel ang angry about this, then I'm doing fucking great and effectively communicating the anger without responding from the anger. If that makes sense, responding from anger, isn't necessarily emotionally responsible, but communicating the anger clearly, that's the sweet spot, but it's, you know, it's still something I struggle with. Oh and, yeah, we all do. Yeah. 
when I, and also, in, and I'm, we'll get to this later, but I think as women, um, we're, we, for me anyway, like there was, it was like, Ooh, it's not hot to be angry. Right. Like the, um, especially if you're talking about feminist issues and you know, you're a feminazi and you're a man hater or whatever, calling people out or calling out cultural issues that affect women in a certain way. Um, and being angry about them means that you're unattractive, which is like in a patriarchy is like kind of the only currency that women had for a very long time. So it was like really disempowering um, to, to be angry ultimately, because it was just like, well, then you're not hot and you're not wanted and you're rejected from, from, from this. I, I, I was about to say the tribe, but I know that word is um, problematic, but I also kind of like long ago, we were all in, in tribes. And I think to your point earlier about survival, we are still, we still have that sort of reptilian, like I need to stay in my group in order to survive. And if I'm cast out, then I could die. So it does feel very scary to, to be like, Hey, you're only, uh, the only thing that you have, the only thing you can leverage powerfully in our group is being attractive. And by the way, if you get angry at us men, then you're immediately not attractive. And now you have no power within the group and we cast you out. It's like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think we, we necessarily know that we're feeling that in the moment or we don't know that that's what's happening, but we feel this intense fear. So anyway, that that's one thing that I think is worth talking about. And we'll talk about it later. And the other part of that has been, um, around like this piece around how do I, how do I work with this stuff in a way that's helpful and healing is, um, saying no, <laughs> when no was the truth, because you don't have to be angry to say no, even though I think sometimes we think that's true, but we can very calmly say no. The only thing is if you grew up in an environment like mine, you know, no was not an option in my childhood. No says I value myself over you. And that was not an option in my house, especially emotionally speaking, my parents came first, their emotions came first, but as an adult, no, AKA I value myself over you is necessary. And it has absolutely been the antidote to codependence in my life. Like, no, I don't want to eat inside during this pandemic surge. I prefer to eat outside, even though that's inconvenient for everyone else. No, I'm not going to take this job that doesn't pay my rate. No, your behavior makes me feel uncomfortable and I'm not okay with it. Even like, you know, Ooh, wow. I would love to say yes to this toxic sexual relationship that feels both shitty and validating at the same time. But no, I deserve real intimacy. I deserve authentic connection. I deserve someone who's curious about who I am and not someone who tries to manipulate or bulldoze over me. So that's been my relationship to codependence. Sarah, how are you doing over there? I am like wishing we had some days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Like an octopus with like tentacles of excitement. So yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Okay. Awesome. Because I have questions for you. Okay. And I think I'd just like to start out with some basics to get people acquainted. And also, you know, probably is helpful for me too. From a clinical perspective, what are the signs of codependence? And generally speaking, as a therapist, what impact do you see codependence having on people's lives? Sure. Okay. So, um, 
you know, I kind of broke it down into three main buckets of what I'm going to call out of balance experiences. Um, and I'll get into what that means in a minute, but I'm just going to like that Virgo in me like really wants to make sure I answer the question, right? Um, so I would say that there are three like main buckets of experiences that you're having on like a regular or daily basis that can highlight like that codependency has become like your resilient adaptivity, right? For survival of life. Um, and it's important to say we all have these experience in like bits and pieces and moments, but when we're experiencing them out of balance regularly, like it's, it's a nature and a nurture signal that we need to listen to in ourselves. So the first bucket um, is that like our internal regulation is what I call other dependent. Mm. So um, we always do what other people want. Uh, you know, people pleasing is like a big codependent like cue, like we're constantly our our days and our thought processes really center on whether people want people pleasing, needing other people's input in order to make decisions for ourselves. Oof. And you know, this like walking on eggshells of like you're trying to anticipate what somebody else is going to want or trying to not upset them, things like that. Right. Um, and not really having like that, you know, like that self-regulation you know, that is almost like necessary, right? To like say no that you were talking about before. Um, the second big bucket that I say is like self-neglect. And again, mm. this is also often like in service of others to please them. Um, oh, I have a doctor's appointment, but I'm going to cancel it because this person needs me to pick them up and take them somewhere. Um, right. I'm going to only get three hours of sleep this night to do, you know, finish, you know, this person's project for them because they don't feel like doing it or they say they can't handle it, things like that. And, but also self-neglect comes into play when it comes comes when you are not choosing behaviors that align with like your own values and principles uh, in service of others. You know, you're doing something that you know feels icky inside of you and that doesn't align with what you believe, but because um, of these relationships and because of these worries and fears, you're going to do it anyway. Wow. Um, and I mean, like what you were saying with like, I don't feel comfortable eating inside when, um, when this pandemic is going on, but I'm going to do it anyway, because I don't want, um, so-and-so's parents to, um, feel upset. I can't right. bear that kind of thing. Right. And like the last thing is like, most of the time, you know, you don't feel good you are constantly noticing like this need to like fix and rescue is kind of controlling you, but it's also trying to control the people and the situations in your life. You know, you talked about it before you, there's this fear of rejection and abandonment and um, self-criticism that you're experiencing internally, like a significant amount of time. And you're also kind of like regularly resentful and critical and, of others, as well as like feeling empty and constantly like taken advantage of. Ooh, I've totally been there. Yes. So those are like my three buckets. And, you know, like the impact is, you know, it's really kind of the impact of what that's like is it's really kind of like in the like symptoms, I guess you would say, but mostly like, you know, I would say it's suffering and that suffering can really be seen in those signs. And like from a clinical perspective, we're always looking for it to 
you know, how is it impeding the function of your life? If you're not able to have like reciprocally healthy relationships, if it is tearing down your health, um, if you are not able to meet your own needs because you're in service of others, things like that. Right. So go ahead. Um, yeah, I relate to a lot of those. I can see that I've had some, there's been like an evolution and I'm definitely getting better, but I even had a situation recently where, um, I realized, yeah, like I haven't been, and this is interesting because currently right now, Venus is in retrograde and Venus rules values, your value systems. So when it's in retrograde, it gives everyone an opportunity to review what their values actually are and whether or not they are in acting in service to their values. And yeah, I totally have a situation that has come up recently where I've been like, no, I have not been like, I have been biting my tongue because I um, want to feel safe or whatever it is. Uh, so I completely I think those are so powerful and I, and so clear. Um, I think our internet is being weird again. Oh, are you there? Let me see. Um, I am here. I am here. Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, now I got it. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yep. I can hear you. Let me know if I go away. Um, okay. But like in saying that, like, like, it, would you mind if I kind of talk about how like codependency, like codependency and inter interdependency, like this kind of spectrum that we're on? Ooh, yeah, let's hear it. Okay, because yeah, like I hear you saying like I've done all this work and I still have these moments that pop up. And I always think of, um, I remember when I was doing my 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 academic work and um, the book Disorders, which is another discussion for another day, is called the DSM. And I think all of us spend, when we open up that book, spend time wondering how many different uh, different disorders of these things like we have. Like we all have like bits and pieces of behaviors that could seem codependent. But like, I think that there is a spectrum there with interdependence being on one side and codependence being on the other side. And interdependence is, is that like human beings, like we are interdependent. Like you said, we are born into the world and we need others to like take care of us and sustain our life and teach us how to take care of ourselves. Right. Mm -hmm. And the love, and I love that you say that codependence is a survival strategy that, <clears throat> we learn in certain environments as kids in order to survive, right? Mm -hmm. And we need our needs met and like love and witnessing is actually a need. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so as we grow up and as we become adults, we can certainly a lot of times we do, we can continue on that codependence strain because it is a part of us, not all of us, but a part of us that goes into like an autopilot type of state when there's certain stimulus around and just takes over for us because it knows what to do and it helps us survive that moment. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we can also grow up and have like little moments of behaviors and situations and experiences where 
you know, some of it might be in these buckets of behaviors, but it's not happening on a daily basis. It's not happening in a way where it's decreasing like the quality of our life. It's it's not something that, that we can't look at, but like, I don't want us to always pathologize ourselves too. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I, I just kind of wanted to put that out there because I also like really, really connect to like, being a, I don't know, like a codependent in remission. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love that. Um, and at times, like needing to have that compassion with myself of like sitting back and saying, like, okay, like, is this a moment or am I going down a path again kind of thing? Right. So, yeah. <clears throat> well, okay. So, I do want to, I do want to ask about this, like, um, women in the patriarchy piece, because pretty much every culture on earth right now, except for maybe a few small tribal cultures are patriarchies. So women by and large have only ever known life in a patriarchy, which means we've been conditioned to have certain behaviors, see those behaviors as normal, not question them. And I think people pleasing is a prime example, although I do think we've made some headway, um, but you know, this has been thousands of years in the making. So we're not just going to like have a feminist movement in the sixties. And then it's like, whoop, okay, well done with that. So do you have examples of how you've seen people pleasing show up in women in unhealthy ways as a result of the culture we live in? And what does that look like to reroute those behaviors that are so deeply ingrained in us? Sure. And like, I'm going to say, you know, not not in support of patriarchy, but like just in kind of the objectivity of it, like patriarchy is actually also a survival um, style as a survival programming, right? So like, as we, so many of us no longer want that, including myself, like we are up against like so many generations of it being a survival strategy. Like the slowness to changing it is pretty intense. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of want to like lay that as a groundwork really quick, but then to say like some of the ways I've seen it show up in us as women is certainly body image. Mm, um, you know, really. the way we treat our bodies, the way we try to change our bodies, the way we try to show up for our bodies. Um, I think that's a really big example, you know, like, I, I mean, like I, well, I'll get into it, but I think another really, really big one is sometimes like how we interact with each other. Mm. Um, you know, like that judgment and that cattiness that can be there. Not always. I think again, like as women, like we are working really, really hard to find more compassionate and vulnerable ways to connect and support one another. But you know, that, that making somebody else small so that we can feel big kind of thing, that gossipiness, like I do think some of that comes from people pleasing. I think some of this does come from the patriarchy to kind of like keep us in our places and keep us going on the routes that we're going. Hmm. Um, I think lack of self-compassion is a great way that people pleasing like shows up. Um, There is a lack of value for our contributions. You know, like if a man gets angry, it's okay. But if a woman gets angry, it's not okay. You know, like how we show up in the workforce, um, like 
while we're pregnant, while we're postpartum, while we're caregiving for our family members, you know, um, it's, it's impressive and it's un, unrecognized in a really unsupported way sometimes. And, you know, I definitely think like another thing with our bodies, like what we allow to happen to our bodies, like, you know, I definitely also came from a house that covertly, you know, champions codependence in such a way where like, I remember if a boy asked me out, I didn't feel like I was allowed to say no. Oh my God. Totally. Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, like, and even in college, like I really remember like just being like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing this, but I have to, like, I don't feel like I was allowed to have an internal or an external no to it. Yeah. Well, and that goes back to that. No. And actually like, I totally have an experience when I was a freshman in college, I, uh, there was this cute guy who lived in my, I lived in a co-op my freshman year. Anyway, he lived there and there was like a co-op party and we were all drinking and he um, asked me if I wanted to go back to his room. And I did, because I, I did want to make out with this guy. Yeah. And we, we went back to his room and he was like, I'll get a condom. And I was like, oh, no, no. I, and I said, I, I, didn't, I, I don't think we should have sex. And he said, well, what did you think you were doing coming up here? And I immediately, my thought was, oh, he knows how things work and I don't. Uh -huh. and so I because I'm just a girl and you know, he was a little bit older too. I think I was a freshman. He was a sophomore. So I ended up sleeping with him and I did not want to at all, but it was that exactly what you're talking about. Like, um, I have to say yes to you because you know better than I do. Yeah. I mean, and like, and I can even connect like with men and even like with some friendships out there where I've just recognized, like, I don't, I don't feel good being in this relationship. There's constant this, there's constant mm. that. And not having a way to speak to the person to make it different because I, that would me be not being nice. That would be me right. not being people-pleasing. And just not being able to say, like, I don't, like, you are a person that deserves, like, all the love and the compass compassion in the world. And... I don't want this relationship with you. And just, but if you want to be friends with me, then I have to do everything and go out of my way because if, you know, because if you want me, then I must want you. Right. Right. I can't knowing like, Oh, I don't actually want you. And that's okay. Right. Yeah. Like this isn't working for me actually. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So you also asked, um, you were also asking, asking about like rerouting these behaviors. And I love that you say like so deeply ingrained in us, because I think that is such a key term because when we are up against certain, you know, I use the word like stimulus, when we hear certain words, when we, certain tones of voices, even like certain smells, like certain certain kinds of people like this, these codependent behaviors, like they really do. They, they turn on like an autopilot and they take over for us. Even totally. when we're like, no, I don't want to be doing this, but somehow I'm doing this anyway. Right. Um, so it's important, like with that and with like patriarchy as well, is that 
there is going to be an internal and an external push against rerouting this mm. because it's so primal and so simple and even parts of our biology like are going to worry about that like rerouting ourselves will threaten survival right um, and but i think like so so i'll say that and i well i think i'll get to that later so let me just bring myself in and in terms of like reining myself in i tried to kind of um I put these back into like the buckets that we were talking about before of behaviors. Um, Cause like I said, I can talk about this and ramble on and on and on and on. But um, so the first part is like, you know, we need to learn to be able to, to self-regulate easier to say than do. And to put this back in like a place of biology, like we actually really need to learn new neural pathways in our brain. Um, because typically when our body is going to register like a certain risk level, it's going to go into this survival of codependency. Um, and this can be with something as small as trying to make a decision or to anticipate somebody's wants, stuff like that. Um, so one thing we want to do is, you know, you heard me saying this, like with being a Virgo is that, one thing we want to work to do is to acknowledge and recognize this is a part of me. This is a part inside of me. This is not all of who I am. Mm-hmm. It flips on and it goes into autopilot when I'm experiencing certain things. Um, so to learn self-regulation, like we do need to find support within ourselves and externally as well, which is hard when you're codependent, right? Um, and what we want some of these things to do is to help us slow down our experience and get to know like what's happening inside of us so that things can move slowly enough where before that autopilot slips flips on, we can actually learn to build additional choices that we could make in a moment. Mm. And also to then to be able to tolerate what happens when you make a different choice and be able to stand in those decisions, which is so hard. Sometimes I'm like, I'm just like, Oh, yeah, it really (laughs) is. Like if you, I'll just say for me, the times where I've had to say no, like, for example, when I was hiking with that guy and, um, like it was, first of all, it wasn't just that it was terrifying to be like, I don't like the way you're treating me and I don't like the way you're talking to me. Um, it was that I, it's almost as if I didn't even know how to say what I was feeling because it was so foreign to me to have mm-hmm. that conversation. And also I think there's a piece here of like, I want you to like me because you know, we're kind of dating. Yeah. So um, when I finally did say, uh, b- by the way, we had, we were spending the whole, we were, we were on a trip together. So Aww. it wasn't, it, yeah, it wasn't like I could like go home and then send him a text. Like we had another week together. And oh, so, shit. yeah. So I like went in the moment, went behind the bush, 
pretended to pee, sobbed, didn't have to pee at all, came back pretending like I hadn't just sobbed, you know? And then later in the day, he said another thing that just like completely dismissed me. And I, we were in the car and I was just like tears streaming down my face, looking out the window so that he couldn't see that I was crying. And then later, like he went out to his car to get something when we were at the hotel and I sat down and like took deep breaths and was like planning out what I was going to say in my head. And like, it just took everything in me. And that's what I mean. Like what I said earlier about it, not being instinctual. It's just not. Well, no, and I feel like we get sold this false bill of goods of, Oh, just make boundaries, just boundaries. And you know, that, I mean, yes, that is, that is an important part of the work, but again, like just to say those words, just set boundaries that has nothing to do with the kind of internal and external support that requires to say it. And then like, like I said, like really be able to stand in it because we all push against boundaries sometimes. And especially if we are in, like, if, if we have these codependent tendencies, like there are people that just know how to push, push boundaries and they're going to push and push and push, especially if they're not used to us having them. And a lot of times, like we get pissed at them for pushing against these boundaries because like, I just, I just generated all of this internal energy to set this boundary. So how dare you not respect it? And and it's, it's so messy. Right. And it's such it takes time and it takes messing up. And it's like, I tell my kids, it's like try again over and over and over again and learning along the way. Um, And that's what I said, like that, that ability to tolerate what happens when you make and stands and choices, it's a big one. It's not a small feat. It's not, I'm going to put it on my like new year's resolution and kick that out of the way by January. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, especially if you were raised around abuse, Um, it could be a, it could be a lifelong thing, you know, because it's, it's so, um, how you were programmed so early on. And I, I think I also want to say, I want to take a minute because this has been something that I have come up against several times because I was raised around, um, such volatile anger that was a way I think for my parents to, um, have control. And that was something that I think was very scary for both of them was to feel like they didn't have control. Oh, hell yeah. Sorry. Just talking as parent. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, as an adult now, when people become really angry and when they, when they exhibit behaviors that are similar to my parents, like they're, um, they become volatile with their anger. I go right back to that. Like I am four years old again. Yeah. Um, And I think I just want to put it out there in case it's helpful for anyone. It's so easy to go. what, What I have historically done. If someone's angry at me, I think it's because I've done something wrong. That's the, that's the first place I go. Yeah. Ditto. It takes a minute and it has taken me a lot of time as an adult to, to go, actually, if you're having that kind of reaction to something that's like, I can't think of really anything I've ever done that would warrant that kind of reaction, but it's really much more a reflection of that person 
than of me. And that is that, that's sort of that um, boundary setting that has to go on inside of you where you don't just go to the place of I'm four years old and someone's mad at me. And so I did something wrong and I need to fix it for this other person so that they can calm down so that I can feel safe. It's like, oh, you're having a moment. It's about you. I'm going to give you space to work through that and also make it clear that it's not okay to talk to me that way and retreat until you're ready to um, talk in a nonviolent, non-attacking way. Absolutely. Because, you know, like, I mean, the pure neuroscience of it is, is when somebody gets to that level, like their frontal lobe is shut down and that's true with adults. And it's true with children too. Like when children are having a meltdown, like, and it's, you know, it's an adult melting down. I think, you know, I think it was, <clears throat> I think it was in the movie heat where Ash, Ashley Judd maybe said, he's just a child grown large. I mean, we're all just children grown large to a degree. Sure. And when somebody's having a meltdown and their frontal lobe shuts off, like you can't reason with somebody you right. can't, you know, and noticing that it's like, oh, like you're melting down right now. There is nothing that can be done here. And that is about your system being overloaded. That's not about who I am as a person. Yeah. So let's just, it's absolutely like not okay to be like, I'm not going to be spoken to this way. And I will be willing to speak to you like when the frontal lobe is back on essentially, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Turn your, turn your frontal lobe back on and then we can talk. <laughs> I mean, basically, I mean, like, I mean, yeah, I can, I can, I can say both times, you know, I can see in my own relationship where I've just been like, we can't do this right now. Like I am, you know, bonkers. And I think you might be a little bonkers too right now. Like let's, let's not make any, let's not make any more damage. Like let's right. harm reduce this and let's yeah. just back up and we'll talk about it in a little bit kind of thing. So, yeah, for sure. Um, it's I, tough. I wanted to ask you about, um, essentially I just wanted to ask sort of like in terms of the romance piece, like how do childhood relationships inform codependence in terms of how we partner romantically later in life? Sure. I mean, I think from the, from the nature standpoint or the biology standpoint, like we look like our biology seeks what it knows because that equals control. Right. And, you know, out of control feels scary. Um, so we, our body just kind of naturally gravitates towards what it knows from a nurture standpoint. Um, I think that there's all of us that want a redo. Um, we want another chance to get it right or to get what we didn't get, um, to, like you said, to, to heal the wounds, sort of speak, um, but it's all happening in such an unconscious way because we do have, like I said, there's so many bits and pieces of us that go into these autopilots when they see certain things that that's slowing down and getting to know these parts and having more of a working relationship with them instead of letting them just do their thing. Like, 
that's a big piece of the work, you know, and it, but it's also, it gets difficult. Cause like we were talking before, like what are, you know, what are some of the ways to reroute the behavior? You know, we also have to actually have self-care because if we don't have self-care, then we're overstimulated all the time. If we're overstimulated all the time, we're not going to be able to slow down and be aware of ourselves. Um, you know, if we, don't feel good about ourselves all the time, then we're going to want these behaviors to just extract us from our own feeling experience that we can't tolerate. Does that make sense? Yeah. And in terms of, and then like, we can't really have different partnerships. Right. Right. So that, yeah. So like, I, um, how do I want to say this? Like, that piece around, I feel like shit because I'm not in alignment with my values. Yeah. Um, is absolutely going to affect how we partner. And so what does that end up looking like? You mean like, um, like what kind of partners do we choose or like what, what kind of, um, issues come up in our partnerships? Sure. Well, you know, I think that um, the issues that come up is, you know, a lot of times you'll have like the person who is like the codependent, has the more codependent behaviors, like they're going to be really resentful and really exhausted and really undervalued in their relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, They're probably to a level where sometimes like you almost feel embarrassed, like you are out in a crowd and you see your partner just kind of like not doing a thing while you're busy buzzing around and people are noticing it. And it's like, it's embarrassing. It's humiliating, right? Like you just, so can I, so let me ask if this is a good example. I have a really good friend, um, who, what we were at a wedding and she was like running around after their toddler. And he was just like smoking a cigar with his friends and mm-hmm. she, when I sat down with her at one point, she was like raging about it. She was so angry. Um, but she wasn't talking to him about it. Is that kind of what you, is that like an, an example of that? I mean, that's definitely like a good example. Like you, you constantly feel, you know, like you're doing too much and that you're taking on too much and the other person isn't doing anything. And if you muster up the courage to actually ask, like you get this like smartest, helpless person in the room response back. Um, what, what does that mean? And then it just smartest, helpless person in the room. <laughs> yeah. What's that? <laughs> I'm going to get myself in giant trouble here um, <laughs> it is because it's such a trigger for me. Um, the unprofessional professional um, smartest, helpless person is, is, you know, that person that can always pick out a problem or, you know, they can talk about like how they're, they're very educated and they know so much stuff and they have answers for so much, but they can't do anything. They're like, mm-hmm. Oh, but like, where's the bread? Oh, I can't reach it. Can you, I can't find it. Can you find it for me? Like they, they can pick out a problem, but they won't be part of the solution. Like they won't help discover a solution. Ah, um, okay. They'll ask like what's for dinner, but they won't be a part of creating it. Like, you know, just like they'll, they'll just, they're always like the smartest, helpless person. They know it all, but they can't help it all. Kind Interesting. Of 
And it's a little, it's definitely stereotyping and smart assy of me to, and there's no compassion in the way that I'm saying it right now. Um, I think that that's fine. I mean, like, yeah, I think I, it actually is really helpful for me to hear just kind of what that looks like. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, but it's also like, um, you know, codependents and, and smartest, helpless people, like, you know, they, they are, they can be magnets for each other. They really, really can. Okay. Last question for you. Inner child stuff is often at the root of codependence. So what does reparenting the inner child look like when we want to heal from codependence or like any other kind of, I know there are no like easy tips or tools to, you know, just uh, working through people pleasing, but like, if there, if there are some kind of takeaways that we could, um, lay out for people, what, what is helpful in the healing process? The the first one I'm going to say is don't do it alone. Mm. Um, you know, not, I mean, yes, absolutely. Therapy can be very helpful, but I'm not here to just like, you know, stand on my soapbox about that, but you, there are also groups, um, you know, even if it's things like this, like finding podcasts where you can listen to other people talk about it, um, not doing it alone, because like you said, those critical voices inside of us can take us down and we need people around us that can also show us compassion and softness, like to, to really help us do this. And, you know, I definitely know for, myself and my codependent journey that there were certain friendships and certain resources that I just wouldn't have gotten anywhere if it hadn't if I hadn't had that kind of like external support right um like in terms of internal support things that you can do for yourself like starting now um I believe one strong one is to is to make this exercise of starting to recognize like this is a part of me this is not all of me um this is um my daughter put it really lovingly that we have we have fear monsters and we have fear protectors Mm. um fear protectors want to keep us safe from danger fear monsters want to keep us safe from things that they don't believe we can handle. Mm. Um, And the codependent behaviors that hurt us are directly related to like those fear monsters. So reminding ourselves constantly and making it a practice to know this is a part of me. This is not who I am. Mm -hmm this is a part of me. This is not who I am. And I think it's Dr. Becky Kennedy always says to remind yourself, like, I am a good person. I am a good person. Um, starting to cultivate that. I mean, it sounds simple, but, um, it, you know, to go back all the way back to gardening, like you were planting some really, 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 really important important seeds. The other one I'm going to say, which is going to sound really simple, but I think also really, really important is you were talking about when you were on that trip with that dude, like you were talking about how you had to do a lot of breathing. Mm. Um, I believe that breath work can be really important. And I also think again, in American culture, we have kind of bastardized the important, like the purpose of it. 
you know, learning how to do deep breathing and things like that is not to make feelings go away. Mm, It is not to make us feel detached or um, distracted or calm all the time. A lot of times it's actually a practice and being able to tolerate the internal experience we're having. Um, And I don't remember which one it's called, but the one where you exhale for longer than you inhale. Mm. I find um, I do that a lot just as a parent. Um, But it's also like one of the main things like I, I, I like to teach the people I get to work with because it, it sends, we were talking about like the frontal lobe turning off and wanting to turn it back on. Um, It actually sends signals to the brain and to the body to slow down And if we want to be able to build any awareness and to slow ourselves from a reactive place into a responsive place, breathing is our number one support system for doing that. Mm. Um, And so I would really encourage when you're feeling dysregulated and you're feeling like that, that people pleasing either happening or wanting to happen to take care of yourself by doing that breathing where your exhales are, are longer than your inhales to help you learn to tolerate the discomfort inside of you, not to help you get treated like shit. No, um, this is not, this is when you are not in a violent situation, but this is when you are just trying to tolerate uncomfortable feelings inside of you so that you can start to learn from them and you can start to work together with different pieces of you instead of just being controlled by these behaviors that just go on autopilot. Right. Ooh, that's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I think we don't often, excuse me, we don't often, um, we forget about breathing, you know, and it's like so much of what goes on for us is happening inside our bodies. It's like, Uh, these feelings, they're not just, they're not um, ethereal. They're like physical, they're they're in you, they're in your body. And that Mm -hmm. physical work of just breathing, yeah, I think has been so helpful for me. And I wanted to add another one in case it's helpful for anyone. I started doing, um, I made like a meditation on my voice memos in my iPhone that I listen to. And in it, I'll say things like I matter, my wants and needs matter. And, and like, I really had a shift around that because, um, when you grow up in a, in an environment that's abusive, the underlying messaging is you don't matter. Exactly. So just having that, like, oh, if it's true that I matter, then me feeling like shit right now also matters. And if it's true that I feel like shit right now and that I, and that that matters, then I, I should be allowed to have a conversation with this person, uh, about that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And again, like that goes really back to, you know, this idea of like building these new neural pathways, these new ways of doing it, creating like this balance where something was incredibly out of balance to keep you alive. You know, it is, 
Oh, yeah. For some reason, I wish I was sitting in the room next to you. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we could hug. That's why. Uh, yeah. I just, yeah. And just connect and sit next to each other because, yeah, this is big. This is big stuff. Yeah. This is big, big, big stuff. It's so big. And I cannot thank you enough for taking it on with me today. I feel like I've learned so much and I, I thought I knew a lot about codependence, but I learned so much with you today. So Sarah, thank you so, so much for coming on and where can people find you if they want to connect? Oh, sure. Um, psychology today. And I think therapy then, uh, and also, uh, you can look up like the relationalcenter.org. Um, it is a beautiful center here in Los Angeles that does amazing work. Um, so you can link to me through all of those. Amazing. Yay. Yeah. And if you want to connect with me, you can, uh, email me at Patrama party at gmail.com. I am on Insta at Remy's R-E-M-E-E-Z. And um, yeah, till next time. Enjoy the party, baby. Bye. Bye.